I thought early, maybe I can be sheriff. And I said this to um, a, a, a veteran officer, and his exact words were, uh, Glover, there's a 20-year retirement here. I'm telling you, come to work. Keep your mouth shut. Do your job. Make your 20 years. And then go home and wait on the mailman. But my first reaction to him was, I don't think I want to do that. I want to do what they are doing. Hey, y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. In that clip you just heard, Nat Glover talks about doing what they were doing. The they he was talking about were the white men who had run the Jacksonville, Florida Sheriff's Office his entire life. Glover changed that. In 1995, he was elected sheriff, the top law enforcement job in the city, and he became the first black sheriff in Florida since Reconstruction. He went on to serve for eight years and has now written a memoir about that time called Striving for Justice. Glover talked to me about his philosophy of policing, the places he and other officers have fallen short, and the terrifying Saturday in Jacksonville that shaped his young life and set him on the path to work for justice. Here's our conversation. Nat Glover, I'm, I'm sad to say that just a few days before you and I are speaking, um, there was a mass shooting there in Jacksonville where a white man who had a history of racist statements went into a Dollar General and killed three black people. And I, I was just wondering, as I was getting ready to talk to you, how you handle moments like that when you were a sheriff, sort of what priorities you had and how you thought about what to say to the public in those moments. One of the things that you want to have you want to have um, a profile. You want to have a public that believe in you. And whatever happens, you want that public to feel like the sheriff will handle this. So in situations like that, you want to give the public as much information as possible. Now, sometimes the timing on that vary because, number one, when things happen, you know what happened, but you don't really know the backstory, or you don't really know maybe the intricacies of what caused it and that kind of thing. So you want to give the information that you have available to you. Keeping in mind that you don't want to make certain, you want to make certain that you don't give them something that might compromise the investigation as you move forward. A lot of the media coverage uh, about this particular case, I've seen a lot of debate online. Some of the stories refer to it as a racist killing. Others refer to it as racially motivated, I guess is the word I saw a lot. Does that sort of distinction 
matter to you or do, is it more important to say more clearly what something is in that situation? Well, you know, if if you have information that would indicate that the base, the reason, the motivation for the killing was obviously racist, if um, you have documentation, if you have statements from witnesses, if you have a history of the person, uh, there would be a lot of information uh, available to you to give uh, what I would call maybe a tone, a reason, or the motivation for the person's action, then um, um, you, you give that. Uh, I usually try to um, make certain I don't step out too far initially based on obvious evidence until you actually know what you're talking about. So speaking of racist incidents, I think something you come back to in your book several times is sort of a defining moment you had as a teenager and something I guess I had heard about growing up in South Georgia, but did not know nearly the detail that you provide. Could you sort of describe to folks what Axe Handle Saturday was and how you ended up in the middle of it? Yes, and, and I will say Axe Handle Saturday, it was an emotional traumatizing moment uh, for me. During that time in our history, there were what we call sit-in demonstrations going on around the country. And just to explain that a little, um, there were a lot of um, public accommodations that were pretty much uh, there for white people, but uh, African-American Black folk uh, could not access them. And one of those accommodations happened to be lunch counters, restaurants, and, and, and that kind of thing. I mean, if, if you wanted to order something from a restaurant that uh, prohibited African-American access, you had to go to either a back door or a side window or something in order. You couldn't go in and sit down. Well, lunch counters were a big thing too. In Jacksonville, the youth division of the NAACP was conducting regular sit-in demonstrations in downtown Jacksonville at department stores. They would pretty much go in, take a seat, knowing they were prohibitive. Uh, it was pro uh, pro prohibitive from them, and they would pretty much shut down the lunch counter because, of course, the white people sitting at the counter wouldn't necessarily want them to sit there. And the urging of the people that were serving for them to move and they wouldn't move, it just created enough of, uh, I guess, controversy there to shut it down. Well, that had been going on pretty much every Saturday uh, in downtown Jacksonville. Well, we had um, a number of racist Ku Klux Klansmen come in from 
surrounding areas, they were going to put a stop to these demonstrations. A truck came in loaded with brand new axe handles. And incidentally, I saw some baseball bats too, but um, they passed out those axe handles to the participants. And I say participants, the, the Klansmen and the racists. So they all had axe handles. And when the sit-in demonstrations started, they really did uh, aggressively attack those demonstrators with those axe handles. Now, I just happened to be working at Morrison Cafeteria, which was across the street in a catacomb position from Woolworth. I didn't know what was going on outside, but the, the manager of the cafeteria came down and said, look, all of you leave here right away. And he was talking to the black employees. And he said, whatever you're doing, stop, put it down. And um, people just stopped and everybody left. I didn't leave because I had this um, work ethic that was, you know, weaved in me by my mother, uh, whom I sometimes refer to pretty stern dictator in those kinds of terms. And my job after everybody leave was to mop the floor. So I stayed to mop the floor. It took me about an hour after everybody left. When I left, there was no one, I didn't see anybody else in the downtown area of Jacksonville other than the Klansmen and those axe handle weaving races. And when I walked out in the street, they quickly surrounded me and began to hit me with the axe handles. They were not hitting me so hard that it was disabling me, but they were very menacing blows and some hurt a little worse than others, but no, nothing disabling. And I saw police officers standing just outside of the circle they had me in. And he obviously had decided on committing himself to a spectator's role. So he's just kind of watching. And I got a break in the circle and I ran to him and said, please help me. And he told me, you better get out of here before they kill you. And I ran. And I ran home. I ran all the way home, which was about a mile from downtown Jacksonville. But um, Tommy, I can't tell you how afraid I was. Terrified is the word. And when I got home, I just was so uh, terrified and, and ashamed of having run away. Because in my neighborhood, you didn't run away from a fight. And if you did, people will say you're a coward. And if you got that designation of a coward, it lived with you forever. My crime was not because of the pain. It was because of the shame. I, I, I got to a point where when I did stop crying, I said to myself, 
that I will never run away from another fight. I noticed also around that time you had had another encounter with the police. I don't quite remember whether this was before or after that, where you uh, got arrested for, and it just sounds ludicrous to even say it, uh, supposedly stealing a couple of napkins, right? Yeah, yeah, and this was after, I I mean, we happened to, um, in the dishroom, when we were washing dishes, it, it was hot in there and steamy, and so perspiration was just uh, what happens to you. And we would use those napkins to wipe away sweat and, and that kind of thing. And and we would put them in our pocket and that kind of thing. So one night after I got off work one night, and it was about, I'm going to say, 9 o'clock maybe in uh, on my way home, and a uh, police detective stopped me as I crossed the street from the cafeteria, and they obviously had a stakeout, and they were searching people who came out of the cafeteria. And what they were looking for was steaks. In other words, apparently, some of the employees were stealing the sirloin steaks. And I told, when he asked me, I told him the only steaks I see is the one that's half eaten. And I would almost never would see a whole steak. And, but he searched me and he found those napkins on me. And he said, uh, well, well, who's stealing? And I said, I don't know. And I really didn't. And he um, said, if you don't tell me, I'm going to arrest you. And I said, arrest me for what? And he said, he's going to arrest me for those napkins I had in my pocket. And he actually uh, put me in jail, which incidentally was a big deal to me. And the big, the reason it was a big deal, I always wanted to be a police officer and specifically a detective. And in Jacksonville, if you have an arrest on your record, that was generally a deal breaker. When he booked me into jail for petty larceny, then I can tell you that had more of an impact than that he would ever know. So given those experiences you had with the police, why in the world did you want to become a police officer? Actually, um, that's an excellent question because, and, and I guess it might be a peculiarity in me and my personality, Instead of it, uh, I guess, convincing me that I did not want to be a police officer, it made me really want to be a police officer even more. That's one of the reasons that uh, the title of my book is Striving for Justice, because I just wanted to be a part of that system that if I caught a young man with a few napkins in his pocket, I'm going to look for a way to give him a break. I mean, if I have to make him take the napkins back, but to put him in jail and compromise his future seemed to me was a gross injustice. And when you became a police officer, how long had Jacksonville had black officers? Not too long, right? 
I went on in uh, 1966, and they had only had black officers since 1950. So, so they had been on a while, but they their duties and uh, restrictions were such that they, you know, they a long time before they had cars. Uh, they walked just the black areas. Um, they couldn't arrest white folk. And really, when I came on in 66, there still was restriction on arresting whites, but that quickly changed immediately after I came on. And they were not riding with white officers and, and that kind of thing. So when they decided to integrate the uh, police cars and put white and black together, uh, I think they selected five teams and all of the other officers were veteran officers and they also selected me to be in our, and I had not been on, but uh, maybe a year or so. And boy, that was such an honor. So what was it like for you and, and other black officers there when you actually started working cases involving white people and would maybe arrest white people now and then? Was that, was there a lot of resistance there? Well, you know, what if you understand the rules of the game, you 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 learn how to operate within the rules. Uh, we would stop. I mean, we would stop individuals, uh, and if they turned out to be white, um, they committed uh, traffic violation. Um, we would just have to call a white officer and uh, to uh, call a sergeant. And I can tell you sometime uh, the citizens knew that your actions were limited with them and that they were white and they would actually be a little uncooperative and and very selective in some words they might share with you and about you. But they knew you were limited what you can do with them. So they took a little liberty there. Uh, how are you seen in the black community? Because I can imagine a lot of people would be proud to have black officers in the police department. Other people might worry that, you know, you were selling out. How? What was the reaction within the community to folks like you being there? Oh, we've got tremendous uh, respect in the African-American community. I mean, at that time, the limitations were not necessarily highlighted to the point where Blacks would say, you're just a puppet, you, you're not a real police officer, and that kind of thing. Although I don't think it was totally absent for some of them saying that. But the fact of the matter is, uh, the community, from my perspective, were uh, glad to have uh, some Black officers. I had the ambition of doing what's necessary to become a detective. That's what I wanted to be for the very reason I talked to you about earlier, because the detectives have so much latitude in recommending to the state attorney a uh, vigorous prosecution. Um, maybe this one is not as bad as it, as it looked, that kind of thing. So if you in decision on how uh, vigorous you would prosecute somebody, I thought that was another way that I can contribute to this whole notion of justice. 
Well, and you did make detective, and then eventually, of course, you uh, ran for and became sheriff, the head law enforcement officer in the entire county. At what point, or do you remember a moment when you thought, you know, I could do this, I could be the sheriff? Well, I'm going to have to say that I never got to that point. I would like to say that I thought early, maybe I can be sheriff. And I said this to um, a a veteran officer and his exact words were, uh, Glover, there's a 20 year retirement here. I'm telling you, come to work, keep your mouth shut, do your job, make your 20 years, and then go home and wait on the mailman. But my first reaction to him was, I don't think I want to do that. I want to do what they are doing. And when I was saying do what they were doing, they were running the department. They were the sergeants and the lieutenants and the captains who were telling everybody where to go, how long to stay, when to come back, who goes and who stays. And I said, that's what I want to do. It turned out that my thoughts about what I wanted to do in the sheriff's office was a whole lot different from many others. The night you got elected or right around when you got elected, you got a call from Rosa Parks. Is that right? Yes, I got a call from Rosa Parks and and a person whom I had the greatest admiration for. I thought I always put Rosa Parks in the same category as I put Abraham Lincoln because he was uh, another one of my idols who actually did something at the time. And of course it cost him his life. To get a call from her was, I, t- I tell you, I still remember and and I can, I feel like I'm special because of that. Do you remember what she said? Well, she was talking about how proud she was of me. And, and can you imagine that? I mean, a Rosa Pop, you're talking to her, she's the queen of desegregation. And she's telling you how proud she is of you. It blows me away now when I think about it. I get cheer bumps. When we come back, Nat Glover talks about the decisions police officers make that come back to haunt them. That was another one of those moments that I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I just felt like I sentenced that woman to death. That and more I had on Southbound. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, 
somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Nat Glover. You mentioned sort of in passing in the book that once you became sheriff, there were a lot of uh, uh, retirements and that sort of thing in the department. Do I, do I take that to mean that a lot of white officers left when you became sheriff? Yes. There wasn't no question about it. Um, I talked to the executive at the pension fund, and he, he indicated to me that they never had that many people uh, depart from the sheriff's office, retire, quit, whatever, in the history that he had been in. He had been there for years. And, and, and I understood, obviously, why, because the fact of the matter is, during my campaign, I did not have much white support from inside the department. Now, um, some of it was clearly uh, because I was black, but the other uh, was obvious because there was not much, uh, I guess, thought that I would ever uh, prevail. Uh, Some of those officers were trying to pick the right side to be on. And it wasn't, and it certainly wasn't um, my side. But when I got elected, I had to, I had to bring that department back together, big time. And how'd you go about doing that? Well, the first thing I, uh, I had to do was to make certain that they knew we were going to have to address the challenges together. So, of course there were some people who were upset about the fact that they resented uh, me being sheriff. They wanted me to do something to make it clear that I was the boss now and anybody that didn't get on board uh, would be dealt with. But I did not want to take that challenge. I wanted to show that we need to come together. So I did that in the selection of the people that I put around me. I had uh, the top five people in the sheriff's office, including myself. I had um, undersheriff and three directors. I was black and and one of my directors were black, but the other three were white. But the big thing was Four out of that five, we all had master's degrees. I I had to pick the best people that I could find in the sheriff's office because race notwithstanding, I didn't have much latitude to make a mistake or be what I would consider average I had to make an impact. What are a couple of things that you're the proudest of from your tenure as sheriff? Things that maybe are still going on today that that you helped start? 
one of my philosophies about community policing, which was a philosophy of policing that was emerging at the time and sweeping the country, was that you have to convince the community that you really are committed to working with them as a partner more than just an occupied armed police force. But I was committed to it because I felt like it was the answer to effective policing. And so I walked the neighborhoods as a sheriff and I walked the neighborhood at a frequency and a rate that it was more than just doing it for publicity. Now, I was able to get publicity, but for eight years, I walked a total of 408 beats and eight times. So I walked about every week that I got a call from the president of the United States and he told me he wanted to come down and walk a neighborhood with me. And was that and he, was that Bill Clinton at the time? Bill Clinton. And he wanted to bring the attorney general with him. And we walked through a neighborhood together, walked up to people's door, knocked on the door, introduced ourselves, he introduced himself. And of course, my usual pattern was to talk to people and find out how can we be better? What do you think we should do more of? What do you think we should do less of? And that kind of thing. And we did that. And I was able to reduce the crime rate in Jacksonville over the eight years I was in office by 17.1%. How about things that maybe you regret, things that either mistakes you felt like you made or things that you didn't get to do while you were in office? I, I, I don't entertain many regrets, but I did have a couple of incidents that I was so moved by, I uh, felt like maybe I was not as great as people were saying I was. And that is, uh, I had a, a, a young girl that was killed. As I pulled that young girl, her name was Maddie Clifton, as I pulled her from under the bed where she was being kept in the boy's room that killed her, I thought that when I looked at that body, I thought that I had let her down. And I felt awful about that. And I felt less than effective. And I had some young kids who the aunt picked them up from Pop Warner football. And they would happen to be driving their uncle's car. And actually, the mother of the car owner was driving. And the drug dealers thought that they just recognized the car. They jumped out, shot the car up, killed those boys and their aunt. When I looked at that crime scene where those bodies were so mangled with bullets 
that they actually broke their arm and I felt like I had failed them as well. But I will say I did get on television and threaten the bad guys that they need to keep running because we're coming. And, uh, and one of them came in the next day and surrendered. And so we were able to clear that case too. So you make it clear from the very beginning of this book that things that we talk about now, like driving while black or walking while black or all those sorts of shorthand terms are, you know, were just as prevalent, if not more so, back when you were growing up as they are now. Things like the killing of George Floyd a few years ago, uh, things that are sort of flashpoints in our society now have been going on for a long, long time. And I, I wonder, having been in law enforcement for a long time and seen all this stuff up close, how much progress do you feel like we've made and what still has to happen for our society to get better? Well, listen, um, we've made tremendous progress. I've seen it. When you when you look at the culture of law enforcement, as a matter of fact, I talk about uh, a time in the book where um, I think I described it as not my best hour. It was a disturbance. And when we got there, the man had beat up on his wife. I wanted to arrest him. And my partner said, no, we're not going to arrest him because it's just going to make the situation worse. First thing, she's going to go bond him out. They don't have the money to do that, but she'll find the money, make him worse off. Then she's not going to testify. And he's going to get off and he'd be able to do the same thing he did. So we not helped anything. We made it worse. But I just wanted to put the guy in jail because he was kind of strutting around like he knew he was not going to be arrested. We didn't arrest him. Um, had a situation when I came to work the next day. My relief asked us, did we have a situation at that house and we said yeah we had a situation at that house and he said well I want you to know that um, the guy killed his wife that was another one of those moments that I couldn't sleep I couldn't eat I just felt like I sentenced that woman to death I remember going to the mall and have having me a person at the mall pull her out, and I stood over her, eyes watery, and just apologized to her because I felt like I had let her down. And, and it took me a while to get over that. A couple of six weeks later, I have another situation, exactly the same situation. My partner, again, did not want to arrest the guy. And I knew he was he was the senior guy and he was steadfast in that. So we were not going to arrest him. And he was a little arrogant too about he tried to knock her head off, stuff like that. I told him, I said, let me talk to you a minute. I took him out on the porch. They had a kind of a screen in porch. 
I said, let me tell you something. If we have to come back here again, if you hit her again, I'm going to shoot you. And I said, I'm going to tell the white folk downtown, you tried to take my gun, and I had to shoot you. This whole demeanor changed. He said, you can't do that. I said, I can, and I will. Now, hit her again. When I write about that in the book, I make it clear that that was not my best moment as a law enforcement officer. As a matter of fact, it was probably my worst moment as a law enforcement officer. Police officers have so much power. They're the only profession that make a unilateral decision and can take a life and be within the confines of the law. We have to get the best people that we can get to put in those positions and then be ready to defend them when they do their job, they find themselves in a situation where they are under review. We also have to be vigilant enough to hold them accountable when they act and conduct themselves in a way that it can be characterized as misconduct. We have to, and we cannot tolerate officers who have a record of misconduct and protect them. We have to purge ourselves of those kind of officers. I have one last question for you. Have you met young officers who decided to join the police because of you? Oh, I, I met a number of them who said that they did. One of the things I wanted to convey in my book is you can do this. You can reach for the stars. You can persevere when things get tough, but you have to prepare and be the best that you can be. And I can tell you too, Tommy, I've had so many people that would come up to me and, and say, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. And they would remind me of a situation, one that today I remember so well, I was being interviewed, or I was talking to a news person at a restaurant. I was telling him about the reasons I wanted to be a police officer because I can give people breaks and that kind of thing. Not give a person a break that need to be in jail, but give a person a break that I had the latitude that I thought a stern warning would be sufficient. And I was trying to convince him how committed I was to doing that. The waiter came up to wait on us, and he recognized me, having given him a break because he had a marijuana cigarette, something on him. And instead of arresting him, I took it away from him and told him if I ever see him again, 
and he had anything like this on him, I was going to put him in jail and also make it clear that I think you need to do some time. And he said it changed his life. And he just went on and on. I didn't remember him, to be honest with you, but he remembered me. And by the way, um, I got an extra serving of red beans and rice. Nat Glover knows that police officers sometimes earn the mistrust of black Americans. Because when he was a teenager and he needed an officer to help him on accidental Saturday, the officer failed to protect and serve. 60 some years later, that trust still isn't there. It might take a thousand more Nat Glovers to make it happen. But he does see a different Jacksonville than the one he walked as a young man. Not the one he envisioned, maybe, but maybe on a slow road in the right direction. We probably ask too much of pioneers. It's nearly impossible for one person to transform a big city sheriff's department. But one person can transform the idea of who's qualified to run it. Nat Glover can look back on successes and regrets in his career as a police officer. But it seems to me that there's one clear win, his existence in the job. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where every episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See you all next time. Thanks for listening.